Welcome to Caring for Caregivers, your life support podcast, where we explore what it really means to focus on your own mental health and well being, along with the well being of your workplace in the face of COVID 19 and other life challenges. I'm your host, Phil Rayner, and I've been working in the behavioral health care field as a social worker, serving in clinical, supervisory, and management roles for almost 40 years. I'd like to welcome Peter Evers to our podcast today. Um, Peter Evers was the president and chief executive officer of Riverbend Community Mental Health Incorporated and vice president for behavioral health at Concord Hospital before starting with BAMSI. He's a licensed social worker. He brings more than 30 years of experience in the mental health and human services fields, including leadership positions in emergency, residential, and outpatient services. Peter also served as Vice President for Program Operations at the Home for Little Wanderers in Boston, which I have to say is one of my favorite names for any organization I've ever heard, um, <laughs> before joining Riverbend. Uh, prior to that, he was the Southeastern Area Director at the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health. Peter, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure, Phil. Thank you. Um, I wanted to begin by just asking you, what are some of the challenges that your organization has faced in, in, in regard to the well-being of the workforce since the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good place to start, uh, Phil, and I, I will say that I had the misfortune in a way to my first day at this organization was the day that the whole country went into lockdown, which is March, I think it was 13. And so oddly, I've never really, I haven't known this agency as anything but an agency dealing with a pandemic with which, as we all say, no human being alive really has any um, experience of something like this. Um, and I would say the challenges have been rolling challenges. Um, and sometimes along that sort of linear progression um, of the last two and a half years, the, the, the challenges have changed significantly and they've, and they've had their own difficulties. So just going back to the beginning of the pandemic, I think many people were in denial about it. One of my um, one of my colleagues here said he was just dropping his child off um, for the next um, semester, or they've been home for a week um, at college, and said, "Well, don't worry about it. This will be you'll be home for a couple of days, and then you'll be back. It's no no problem." And then we started hearing the word pandemic. Then we started hearing. Uh, in Massachusetts here about the nurse about nursing homes about vet veterans homes about people dying and not being able to contain uh, what was going on so what, what we got together as a group and said our principal uh, job here is solely to protect the lives of the people that we care for and the people who work for the caring and um, that gave us some clarity but at the same time we had um, around us, uh, people leaving work, people working from home, and yet we had a residential component here where our resi people could not work from home. They had to come in day after day. They would do even they would even do things like work for two week periods to, to uh, lessen the likelihood of infection in in the homes that we have. And just by way of background, we have about ninety residential homes, which are you know four or five bedroom homes in neighborhoods uh, surrounding uh, well in southeastern uh, central massachusetts those people were going into work every day they were staying at work 
we were sending in deliveries of uh, of PPE and and remember how quickly we began to understand what PPE meant. Nobody had ever heard yes. before that. Yeah. I remember going into the garage at home and digging out you know masks for the, that I'd been using for uh, sanding and things like that. People were bringing in masks that obviously didn't meet any sort of medical <laughs> necessity, but it was all hands on deck. Um, and there were many frightened um, individuals that, that, that we worked for, many frightened guardians and parents and loved ones, and many frightened staff as well, you know. And yet we were able to hold it together and keep the number of infections down to a minimum. And within that first six-month period, actually not have any fatalities within our residential programs or our day habs. Our day habilitation programs had to close down because we couldn't transport people because they couldn't be far enough apart in the buses. Um, it was it was very difficult. And, you know, we part of the job for our staff was to reassure people who really didn't, and many of the, our folks don't really know what's going on because of their developmental disabilities. So the additional stress really was to keep people calm in the homes. And we couldn't have loved ones coming into the homes. Now, just imagine that for a moment. The, the gatekeeper of the residentials are our, our, our direct care professionals, and they're telling loved ones they can't see um, their, their loved one because of the likelihood of infection, which was very, very real at that time. So um, it really was about making sure that we were caring for the carers, really, making sure that we were sending food to the homes on a regular basis, making sure we were, we were delivering PPE, at that time, we were going through thousands and thousands of uh, rubber gloves, full sh uh, body shields, and of course, of the masks. We were driving to places like northern New Hampshire to pick up masks that had come in from another country. It was, it was one of those very strange times when all of our roles just became very blurred, uh, and it mm. just became a single-minded uh, effort to, to protect and care for the staff. Um, because you might also remember that people were leaving their workplace in droves. Uh, unemployment benefit was uh, supplemented by, I think, $600 a week. Uh, and so people were able not to work and get probably paid way more than our direct care support people just to stay at home and be safe. Um, that right. really was the biggest challenge. Mm. I'm struck by your, your description. <clears throat> it sounds like from the very beginning, you were looking at the well-being of the clients as well as your employees as as equally as equal responsibilities for your leadership team. It it, it was, and it had to be uh, because we because you know you didn't really know what the risk was. We knew it was huge. We know that that that, that people were being reporting as positive. Remember, of course, there was no vaccination at the time. There was no therapeutic. And people were just riding out their illness and people, some people were very sick, some people weren't. And it really had to be a supportive environment for everyone where information it really had to be sort of pushed out. And, and if there's that, I mean, there is always the need to, to recognize the welfare of, of, of the workforce, but that was probably more so. And, and telling people that they were essential and, and thanking them and making sure that we were celebrating the fact that America was really only running at that time because essential workers were coming to work. You know, people in grocery stores, 
people who are in gas stations, people in the hospitals. Um, and, and I think people really did feel that they were part of something bigger, a caring force, if you like, um, and, to, and to recognize that and to keep recognizing it. And one of the things I worry about, Phil, tell you the truth, is, is that going to carry forward? Is that going to carry forward into a way that recognizes people financially as well? You know, many of the people that work in our, in our programs have to have two jobs, three sometimes, uh, and especially in this time of high inflation. Are we forgetting how high we were on essential workers when we needed them most? And I think whenever I speak about this, I remind our legislature here that really, you know, you have an obligation to follow through, uh, to pay people what they're worth. And much of the messaging that we did was, we will advocate, we will continue to advocate for a fair and uh, living wage, um, you know, which, to be frank, it, it just isn't for many of those people who carried us through. Particularly those direct service frontline workers that we've, we've talked about throughout this entire pandemic. Uh, those, those are the people who are often most hard pressed to, to cover the monthly expenses. That's right. And not forgetting, of course, our nurses. We relied enormously on our nurses during that time. They really were in the programs. They were making sure people were, were safe. They were making sure that the events, you know, that people on, we, we have high medical need uh, persons served who are 24-7 on vents. You can only imagine the, the danger and the likelihood of infection uh, for those people, because if they caught the virus at that time, the, the high likelihood that they wouldn't survive that. So the stakes were remarkably high. You know, one of the things that we decided to do was to create, we, we, we got um, uh, a, a wonderful donation from uh, South Coast, which is one of the charitable foundations down here, of around about $100,000. Uh, and they said, you know, use this money. Uh, essentially, we were a pass-through but use this money to support your workforce and people in the communities. We have a program called Helpline, which is in some ways the purest form of nonprofit. It, it, it is a program that helps people with pure assistance. It's a program that would help people with, I don't know, um, uh, co-pays for their health treatment. Many of our folks can't afford co-pays, which is another sad indictment on our health system in this country that needs to be addressed, but I'm not going to get political about that. But at the same time, that, uh, that amount of money allowed us to support our, um, our troops, if you like, you know, because they were the warriors. In terms of saying, you know, we can help with uh, food sometimes, we can help with those co-pays, we can help with legal advice. But also what we did was we put on a series of, uh, of self-care online Zoom. Uh, mm. So it was like, how do you, you take care of yourself? We, we had a comedy night with somebody in recovery who came. And she's honestly one of the funniest people I've heard. And she, she came back and did that through, um, you know, the, the, and actually she got to do it in person recently um, at one of the celebrations that we had. But I think people really responded to that. It's like, oh, look, this is unusual. They're putting on events that obviously we couldn't be together, but there, there are all sorts of opportunities to, to enjoy fellowship uh, through Zoom, you know, through these, uh, well, the celebrity squares that you and I are talking through at the moment. Um, <laughs> and I, did, I do think that brought a sense of 
solidarity to the organization. And it was fun. You know, it, it was a dire time. And, you know, to be honest with you, Bill, it still is. You know, um, we're still having, um, you know, many people uh, positive. And, you know, it's, it's important that we keep people's heads up. I, yeah, I did want to ask you about that. I, you know, I see us moving into, we've moved through a number of phases of this event, this protracted event. What are some of the challenges that you see your employees facing at this point in the pandemic? Well, I think there's a number of things, Phil. And, you know, one of them is, I mentioned it before, it's uh, we're still here, everybody. You know, we have, we have played this role and yet we've just had a budget uh, passed in this state, which still doesn't recognize what people should be paid, nowhere near. So they're they're tired, they're worn out. You know, they are they have been doing doubles, um, you know, time and time again. We don't we try not to force people, you know, and, and, and to, to into overtime, and we do a pretty good job with that. But sometimes we do. You can sustain a crisis for a short period of time. In some ways, it's different. It's I wouldn't use the word exciting, but it's a different way of doing your work. But if you are constantly dealing with this, having to put PPE on, you know, uh, every day, having to wear a mask, and just think about wearing a mask for an eight-hour shift, it's it's a really difficult thing to do. I mean, people are breaking out, you know, and it's and and it's hard. And some of our persons served, it's unsafe for them to wear masks because um, many of them have breathing issues and. Uh, and if you can't take it off, you can't wear it. And so you've got to live in an environment where there's higher risk than that. So this goes on and on and on. And I think people just sort of get weary. I think people are just very weary about this. You know, we, we've done things like um, send out, um, we, we had, I don't know, I'm going to say something like 1,000, 1,200 um, sweatshirts, Bamsi sweatshirts made, and we delivered to them to their homes. We delivered, you know, plants and flowers and just mm. sort of continually trying to recognize people. But they're angry still. They're angry because they feel like they haven't been rewarded appropriately. And we, we took a chance. We, uh, we called it the great bargain. We said, look, we can't keep paying people these low rates without recognizing. So we made significant adjustments, adjustments of up to 20%. But, you know, inflation <laughs> then comes in. Swallows it know, up. And swallows it right up and, and you know yesterday i was out in the programs and somebody said to me you know when i when if i can do a double at the same home i'll do that but if i'm asked to go to another place to do another shift that mileage i can't afford because you know we're paying i don't know what it is with you but we're we're still paying 450 a gallon here. Mm -hmm. um, and that affects everything you know um food wise um and so the challenges have changed from more from reaction to crisis to the sort of chronic daily grind of making sure that people are safe and the chronic sort of occasion when, when somebody tests positive and you have to go back into emergency um, emergency procedures. One of the things that we did, though, as soon as there was a vaccine was work with our local pharmacists to uh, have clinics. Uh, mm -hmm. all over the agency. So we had nurses uh, come and offer the vaccine on site, and it was tremendously popular. You can imagine when it first became available, we had lines down the street here, people saying, yeah, count me in. And if there was one benefit they were getting from that, Phil, it was that they were first in line to get the, 
the vaccinations. And I think they felt good about that. That was that was something that we could provide that was really tangible for them. And, and, and they felt protected. One of the things we did, though, was we made the decision that we would go to being a fully vaccinated uh, agency, as many people did. Um, you know, and I look back on that and I, I have mixed feelings about it. I still think it's the right thing to do. But um, a lot of people didn't want to be vaccinated. Now, we had people um, who had uh, exemptions through uh, religion and medical. But now we are 98% vaccinated as a workforce. And then the other two are made up of people, 2% are made up of people who have those exemptions. I might be one or 2% off on that. But again, many people who had very severe convictions about the vaccine, there was so much false information that was put out about it, if you remember. Oh, you know, sure. Microchips in it, and Bill Gates somehow got involved in that, no idea. Mm -hmm. But all of those rumors were swirling around. So one of the things that we did was we just had open listening sessions, and we've done, that's something that has survived. That's something culturally that has been taken on by the agency. Having listening sessions where people could absolutely say what was on their mind, absolutely say what they thought of the leadership, and people didn't hold back. And I was really pleased about that because at least people were able to say what was on their mind in front of their group of people. Because if they're going to say it, they'll say it. It's just they won't say it in front of you. And it and it gives us the opportunity to um, to take that on board and and make adjustments to how we do things um you know and, and there's been quite a few things that have changed around that with weekend differential shift increases because that's what people said that would would work you know uh benefits for uh education that we've put in there to say look you know we want to walk and lock lockstep with you around your career this isn't about coming to work to fill a thursday night shift like you could do at uh, target or some of the places that could pay more we have to define ourselves as an agency that really does want you embedded in our culture. And, and that really is about helping people along the way to become, you know, a certified nursing assistant. That's the first step on the ladder to become a licensed practicing nurse, which is the next step, an RN. And then perhaps onto, you know, um, uh, advanced practice nursing, beginning to sort of chisel out these, these pathways for individuals to make Bamsley their home for a Korean. And that's something I think that we focus a lot more on with the pandemic, that we owe it. This is a compact that we have with our workforce. It's not just a transactional um, relationship between you come to work, you work and you get paid. You know, that you can do that anyway, but, but defining yourself as something bigger than all of us, which is the caring force that I mentioned before, this body of people who recognize that the work that they do is incredibly important. Somebody once said to me, you know, this human service work, you know, it's not rocket science. And I said, no, it's way more complicated than that because we're dealing at the cold face of human emotion and, and human devastation oftentimes. For instance, with our acquired brain injury programs, you know, we provide services to people who are very high functioning folks at one point and they fall off their bike or have an, an injury and their life is redefined uh, and coming to terms with that, doing that work is just so enormously complicated and important uh, and constantly reiterating the importance of the workforce, I think, is something that is incredibly 
helpful. And, you know, one of the things that we decided to do, um, and I'd actually done this in my other job, was to hold a weekly podcast. And I think we're on podcast number 105 or something like that. Um, wow. Yeah, and, that, and, and we have people in from different programs um, to talk about what they do. Again, the message is getting out to the agency. There's a whole lot more to Bamsey than the program that you're in. And therefore, take an interest in it. Volunteer. We we have a lot, and, and hopefully, I'll get the chance to talk about our um, diversity, inclusion, equity, and uh, uh, justice uh, access program. But Actually, getting, let me let, yeah. let me pursue that with you a little bit because you know one of the one of the challenges that I think we are all aware of right now is the the difficulty of hiring and retaining qualified staff in every organization, but certainly health and human services have been experiencing that quite a bit. Um, and this issue of really valuing diversity and equity and inclusion um, beyond the beyond documenting it, but actually living it, yeah. is, is extremely important to people who are considering new positions or do I stay with an organization or not? So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about how you're handling that at Bamsey. Yeah, yeah. And this is something that I think we are all very proud of. Um, obviously, with the with the pandemic, then came the murder of George Floyd. And, and, and in some ways, that was, in a lot of ways, that was a a pivot point. Now, it didn't, it didn't fix everything, obviously. But all of a sudden, you know, white people were demonstrating with black people. We had, you know, Colin Kaepernick, who was shunned by the entire world, was suddenly replicated on the football fields of Scotland and England and France. And there was a definite shift there. A lot of organizations shied away of taking up the cudgel on that. I'm really proud of our board because I went to them and I said, we need to make a declaration because the majority of our workforce are, you know, uh, people of color and they need to know that we care that their lives are way more frightening than than mine anyway because you've got to negotiate the roads to get to work you know uh in terms of what was happening or, and what uh, people of color were perceiving was going to happen so we actually made a declaration and we said we believe that black lives matter right off the bat and, and in some ways that is you know explaining the why before the what and the how right i'm telling you that this organization believes in, in diversity, in justice, in equity and inclusion. And we're going out on a limb to say it. And we also recognize that in the past, we haven't lived up to those principles, but we will continue to strive towards it through a DEJA, which is what we call it, which is the uh, diversity, inclusion, equity and uh, justice and, act and access. That committee will hold the leadership accountable for standing behind the words that we've spoken. And out of that came safe space for people, called it table talk. It was for BIPOC folks, for people of color, to gather and talk about some of the concerns that they had about working at BAMSI, but also working, living in communities. So we had speakers come to say, how do you protect your young black son um, in terms of how do they make decisions that will protect them? You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't have to do that but it was necessary. We had, um, we had uh, a uh, local um, lawmaker come and say, how do you get involved? What does advocacy mean for people of color in this time? 
um, incredibly successful. We had book clubs where we introduced the, the notion of, you know, growing up in a culture as a minority. And, and we st- that book club still goes on uh, right now. Uh, and there are discussions in the book club. You know, it is all about measuring and baselining. Okay, what does the organization look in terms of racial makeup at the at the leadership level and at the where the real work happens at the coal face of the work that's done and how are we going to alter that how are we going to give people of color the opportunities that perhaps they haven't had in the past are we sponsoring people in our uh, in our emerging leaders project which is ongoing we people apply to be an emerging leader and are identified in succession planning as people coming through all of these things sort of make up for an atmosphere and an environment which is seen as more just than it was before. I'm not going to overstate it because there's a long way to go. We have a long way to to, to um, go with this. But the feedback that we get, and, and I'll give you an example. We, um, uh, we had a, a BIPOC meeting uh, recently and people said that they were getting stopped in a certain town. And I won't mention the town. Uh, uh, by the police, people of color driving to work, uh, even out in the community with, you know, with our person served. So I went and met with the police chief and I said, look, you know, this is an issue and uh, I want to address it. And the police liaison, and actually the the, the police chief was great and said, no, this cannot happen in our town. We have to address this. Um, You know, the police liaison then sort of went to the homes, met with the staff, and now there's a relationship there that exists. Uh, but that kind of direct action, I think, was really important in saying, oh, that, you know, rather than saying, oh, that's awful, that's really terrible. It's, it's get in there, have conversations, bring the staff with you so that they can meet, you know, the members of the, of the, of the police. I was going to say constabulary, but the police force. Uh, <laughs> my age. You know, just sort of being active around you know, some of those issues. Um, and, and I think that's sort of really helped us. And now the uh, committee, the Deja committee is about 35, 40 strong, which is, you know, it started with, I think, seven of us. And I think the other thing that we do now is we go uh, to uh, conventions and conferences and tell that story that I've just told you uh, in pictures, uh, in videos, in words. And, and actually, I'm, I'm going to show off now, the Association for Behavioral Health, which is our trade association, gave us the Diversity, Equity, and Justice Award uh, last oh, year. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. We're, I mean, very, very proud of that, you know, and I think we've worked really hard on it. And it's been the work of, you know, tons of people just getting, rolling their, their sleeves up, both for the entire workforce, but recognizing the differences and, uh, and difficulties that a certain portion of the workforce have been dealing with on top of everything else. You were mentioning earlier the the importance of being able to pay a, a reasonable compensation for the work that people are doing. And it also sounds like there are a variety of other factors that you found to be important in supporting the workforce and encouraging them to continue in the work that they're doing. These these career development pathways and and demonstrating that there's the genuine valuing of diversity and equity and inclusion. There's still a great challenge though in, in staffing. I, 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 in most organizations I speak with, I don't know if, if you're running into that in yours, but most everyone yeah. 
Do you have any thoughts on what more might be helpful in encouraging people to stay with the work that they're doing in, in human service organizations? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we also have a recruitment and a retention committee that meet here. And so out of that come, you know, we nibble around the edges in some ways, you know, when, when we offer, you know, tuition remission. That's a good one, actually, and, and reimbursement. When we, when we define somebody's work life as a part of an organization that they can grow in, uh, and, and, you know, I do orientation every Monday. And so everybody that comes into the organization um, hears from me saying, you know, I, I, I make this joke. I say sometimes I feel like a, an airline pilot. You know, when you, when you land and you say, um, you know, thank you for traveling British Airways. I realize you have a lot of different choices, but choosing us is very special to us. And I, I make that joke, but I really mean it. You know, people can make all sorts of choices. And what I say to them is, you, you know, you, you've heard from somebody else that, that it's a great place to work. That's great. That's our biggest form of referral, by the way. Uh, now it's up to us to prove it to you. It's somewhere you want to stay. And we will do that by joining you into the culture of this organization through positive performance appraisal, through regular meeting with you to see what your needs are and where you want to go the biggest failure of an organization if they don't is if their supervisors don't sit down for a period every week to say how are you doing what do you want to do what is your plan what are your dreams for the future how can we fulfill this organization and really instilling that culture of connectivity that culture of belongingness and you when i go to the programs you know, it's a mixed bag. I can tell you, Phil, but it's a mixed bag. Some people go, you should pay us more. And then, you know, and that's it. Other people say, well, you know, it was really nice when you gave us a hundred dollar bonus at Christmas. And, you know, we, they've never done that. Now we, of course, we have to do that forever because that is now law. Know, it's the, that's the standard. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know what? It's the least we can do. Um, and then, and then, you know, turkey vouchers, you know, for people at Thanksgiving, it's the little things. We rebranded recently, and, and I'm very proud of our, our brand because it's all part of our launching ourselves as a preferred employer. But everybody in the organization got a swag bag of this is the new logo. These are the pens that you can use, chip clips, and, and sort, of get, sort of generating an enthusiasm and an excitement about, what, about working here. We've still got a long way to go. We have a high turnover rate. This job isn't for everybody. You know, it is, it's tough. Um, the clinical work is tough. Um, uh, the, the, the ADL, the uh, attention to daily living, cleaning folks who mm. can't clean themselves. It, it's, it's for very special people. It's not for everybody. You use some terms there that some organizations may be very familiar with and some maybe less so. When you, you talked about um, rebranding and branding yourself as a preferred employer, can you talk a little bit about what that means um, and um, what organizations do when they're rebranding? Sure. It's, it's something I knew little about until I got involved in the process, and it's a whole science to it. And it's one of those things that, you know, you show the, you show the logos to people. I don't like the colors. Let me explain. Um, our, uh, I mean, I think most organizations should be rebranding every decade anyway. I mean, you know, our... We, we had a logo that was great in 2004, but it was tired. Um, but it's not just about the logo. There, there, there's a strategic philosophy to why 
we want to change the way we look. And those two, the, the two most important things are generating interest in the organization from a philanthropic perspective. You know, if, you're, if you are dependent on government um, uh, contracts, you'll always be poor. I mean, you know, there's no doubt about it. When you think about Medicaid, Medicare is 60% of cost. It gives you an idea that you're going to have to do something if you're going to be able to serve the population you want to serve. We, we don't necessarily want to serve uh, the worried well, although that would be fine. We would do that. But our real mission is to be the, a safety net provider. And so branding does, this, does a number of things. It reinvigorates interest in the community. Never be the best, best kept secret in your community. Make sure that people know you're there. Make sure they know you're a quality organization who does incredible work with babies, with, with the elders, you know, with, um, with people who struggle with addiction. Define addiction as a chronic disease and not a choice. Begin to address stigma. Advocate for uh, funding for these things. You can do that much better if you have uh, a branding that is catching the eye of the public, that is reinvigorating what you do. And then, of course, the big piece of it is the is access. When you rebrand, you you define your services so that people understand them more. So now we have Bamsi Home, we have Bamsi Kids, we have Bamsi uh, Community, we have Bamsi Health. Easily understandable descriptions of the things that we do, and uh, that's already getting a lot of sort of feedback for us. It re you cannot rest on your laurels. Uh, in this business. There are many nonprofits doing business around here in Massachusetts. And my feeling is that you have to define yourself um, to get people to come and work for you. When people see, oh, that's a that's a cool logo and wow, that's a that the website is really attractive and they're thinking about two or three other places, that's a bit of a competitive advantage for us to make people think this is somewhere I want to come. Um, and then once they're here, of course, we have to we have to nurture them and, and persuade them that this is the place they want to stay. So the process took about nine months and it costs some money because we have to because a lot of our signage has to be changed. But essentially, if you don't do it, I think you're going backwards because people just become blind to, you know, your presence in the community. And that's not a good thing for people like us who need to be loud in order to reach the people who don't necessarily feel think that they need help sometimes. And, and how does that plan to becoming a preferred employer? How, this Well, it's part of the plan. It is, it's defining, you know, what your employment practices are. You're making sure that you are absolutely the, as diverse and inclusive environment that you can be so that everybody that walks in the door has a fair shot at, at any position in the organization, that you're continually succession planning within the organization and raising those people up. You know, internal, internal promotions are so good for morale. People love it. Now, I don't say that you, everybody should be internally promoted because then you'd just be promoting for, you know, looking for jobs forever. You need new people coming in. But uh, creating an environment where people feel that they have as good a shot as the next person is really the essence of becoming a preferred employer. We have just been selected by the Boston Globe to be our regional best employ employer. There's a process to it. it we, we'll be going public with that, um, you know, when the Globe uh, prints that. that. That means something. You know, me, I, I don't know about you, but whenever I read that Google is a great place to work, 
and and actually my my uh, daughter-in-law works for them and and it is a great place to work they 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 have made tremendous investments lucky them uh in making sure that the environment is as positive as it can be for people and that's when you get good outcomes for the people that you serve you know you can't have high quality services in human services without people feeling engaged and feeling part of an organization and you know that is when i think you i don't think there's a number you get to or anything on a on a preferred employer it's just how you're you're viewed in the community are there lessons that you've learned having come through this so far that you anticipate continuing to take forward into the future yeah i think one lesson that we've learned is that it's easy especially during the pandemic for the to be a diversion or a split between the administrative functions of the organization and where the real work happens and i think the lesson is we have to really define our worth in our hr department we have to define our worth in finance and we have to be customer service oriented in it um and i think that lesson was really was was hard learned you know because everybody you know all of those administrative functions went home we were told to and all of those people who were providing um face to face care couldn't and that drove away you know so we were talking about hybrid models while people were saying hey what do you mean hybrid and then if you're not contactable immediately and you're working at home you know it it, it gets worse so you know we need to hold ourselves accountable you you should be answering the phone and getting back to people with the same urgency uh, and speed that you do when you're at your desk and if you don't then I'm sorry you can't work at home um so I think that's probably a big one you know that we really need to instill a camaraderie that people understand what what our functions are and be much more transparent about that and we do a lot of going into the programs and talking to folks and having them come here as well and see what it's like to work because there are different stresses for our finance people and HR people of especially HR because you know they're struggling with recruitment. Sure. Uh, so I said I would say that's probably the biggest lesson that we learned. If people want to learn more about some of the ideas that you've you've discussed today, are there any any books or or other resources that you might recommend somebody look to to learn more about some of these ideas? Yeah, I mean I think our website which is bamsi.org b a m s i.org uh, has a lot of information on the um on the uh, inclusion uh, work that we've done and diversity work that we've done um you know uh, there's also i think a list of the books that we've chosen to uh, introduce the conversation about race i mean we haven't written anything up specifically but we have uh, presented at the new england human resources association because again you know it was like how do we because diversity and inclusion became really a bit of a buzzword and a lot of agencies were paying lip service to it uh, and so a lot of organizations are now saying oops that's not enough we need to do things like make declarations and you know i, I did hear when we when we did that uh, a lot of people felt that their organizations let them down by not taking that risk and it is difficult sometimes i, I don't I don't see it as political, you know, I see it as an equity issue, but a lot of people did. Um but I went to the board and I said this is risky, but I feel that we need to do it and I don't want to look back in 6 months and say, yeah, we should have done that and you know we're behind the eight ball. So I think 
you know, any advice would be be brave about that. You know, you know you're going to be on the right side of history if you if you talk about diversity, inclusion, and equity. I don't see how you can't be. Um, and and the arguments you're going to get against that uh, are not feasible to me. Um, so I think you know, making sure that you that you that you think things out along the lines of making sure that everybody has a fair shake. Peter, I think that that covers so much valuable ground. I just really appreciate your your time and and your suggestions. This has been very very valuable, and I'm I'm just grateful for the uh, time you were able to make available. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure. It was a real pleasure. You you made that very easy. Thank you very much. Help is here. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health or substance use concerns, contact 1-833-2-FIND-HELP. This podcast is produced by Advocates for Human Potential and supported wholly or in part through an emergency COVID-19 grant to the Illinois Department of Human Services Division of Substance Use Prevention and Recovery from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. The sentiments expressed in this podcast are not endorsed by any of these involved entities.